Hello, and welcome to The Weeds on Vox Media's podcast network. I am Sarah Cliff, and I am not here with anybody in the studio. It is just me. Um, Ezra's still on vacation somewhere, and Matt is taking a bit of a break. And we're doing a bit of a special episode today. Earlier this week, I had a chance to sit down with Atul Gawande, who is a healthcare writer and practicing surgeon who I've admired for such a long time. And we had this conversation at Sixth and I, a really gorgeous historic synagogue in downtown D.C., hosted by Politics and Prose, a local bookstore here. And we just got to geek out about health policy for an hour. It was a lot of fun. We talked about his new book, Being Mortal, which came out a few years ago now when we were able to talk about how his views of -of end-of-life care have changed since he published that book. And my favorite part of the discussion was talking about the opioid epidemic, which is not something Atul has written a lot about, but he had some really interesting thoughts about how doctors, doctors like himself, are largely to blame for a lot of the problems that we're having right now. So we're going to jump right into where we started at Sixth and I this past Wednesday and hope you enjoy it. Thank you all so much. Um, I've been in this venue many times before, but never sitting up here. So I am very excited and only a little bit nervous um, and excited to be here with Atul, who is a writer I have read for very long, admired for very long, read your books and New Yorker articles. And vice um, versa. No. She, I read her every day. You have to read her healthcare policy column, which comes out the newsletters every day. I don't know how she did it. And and she got it out today right before getting here. (laughs) And I also want to welcome, we have a lot of people um, listening to this through the audio. Um, This is going to be broadcast as a live episode of the podcast I hosted Vox called The Weeds. I don't know if we have any Weeds listeners here, but um, great. Fantastic. I love it. That's great. Well, we have a lot of them listening who cannot be here tonight because it is sold out because they do not live in D.C. So they are also joining us and I wanted to welcome them. So, you know, I wanted to start with your most recent book, Being Mortal, which I read, I think a lot of our audience read, and is now being released in paperback. And on rereading it, you know, you you released this book three years ago, and I'm curious how writing that book changed your own practice as a doctor, what you do differently since doing all that research, and what are the issues you as a practitioner still struggle with in end-of-life care? So the the, in a way, it was... um, the story itself of going through the process of changing my practice, recognizing that I wasn't doing, I, I was uh, frustrated, often confused about how to really um, understand how to deal with the reality of mortality in patients. And then I include family members like my father uh, who developed a brain tumor along the way. And, you know, the dis- exploration was how do you become competent at dealing with mortality? And I think the biggest core lesson for me was that as I interviewed people about dying, you realize that it's not really about death. It's actually about living because the ultimate goal isn't to have a good death. The ultimate goal is to have a good life all the way to the very end. Um, The thing that I took away most clearly was to recognize that people had priorities in their life besides just living longer. That the only way to really learn what those priorities are was that we needed to start asking people what those priorities are, especially when they have a serious life-limiting illness or um, just the difficulties of frailty and aging. Um, When we don't ask, it's very likely that our care is out of alignment with what people want, and that's when you get suffering. And once I'd recognized that, I saw it everywhere. Because I'm a, I, a big part of my practice is cancer surgery. We have uh, a large aging population as well. And so even for seemingly minor procedures, you would have people who, have, who are facing you know, major uh, either end-of-life issues or just really diminishing quality of life. And I finally felt armed to recognize I just needed to ask some basic questions about people's priorities. And... Now what's changed for me is that I feel um, competent and more than competent. I actually look forward to these conversations where I feel like I can actually do good just by asking the questions that people don't ask. Things like, well, what's your understanding of where you are with your illness at this time or your health at this time? What are your fears and hopes uh, for the future with your health? What are you willing to sacrifice and not willing to sacrifice for the sake of more time? And 
you get the most interesting, amazing kinds of answers, and they give you guidance. I write in the book about a person who said uh, their answer was, well, if I can eat chocolate ice cream and watch football on television, that'll be good enough for me. I go through a lot to do that. <laughs> but if I can't, then, then just let me go. It's, it's the best living will ever. <laughs> very specific. Very specific. <laughs> uh, and then, you know, lots of other people say, no way, chocolate ice cream is, is good enough for me. This is what I'd live for. So now the part I struggle with still, I think the hardest part is discussing prognosis with people. Uh, and, I, and I'm still working on how to do that. You know, when you are, uh, there's always a certain amount of uncertainty, but when I have someone who has an incurable condition or an incurable constellation of conditions um, and want to talk about the prognosis, I still have people who feel like I'm being too harsh or beating around the bush. And, you know, I'm slowly learning to do things like tell people it's called best case, worst case. Here's the best case of what we could see. Here's the worst case. And here's what I see as most likely. And I've been trying that lately. <laughs> do you feel like it's getting easier as you do it more, or you still kind of struggle with that? I think it, what's getting easier is asking and understanding what people's priorities are, really trying to hear for things like, you know, I want to be at home above all. I don't want to have to end up in an institution. Or, no, that'd be okay with me um, as long as I get to do X, Y, or Z, that this is what a meaningful life is for me. And then... And then how do we deal with the uncertainties of the options in front of you to make choices? Mm -hmm. And I really like that. It's a shift from the model that we're really taught as medical students, that, um, that the model that has emerged has replaced paternalism with the view that we should be fostering autonomy. I call it the retail mode. Mm -hmm. You know, here are, the, here's, here are the facts, here are the options, A, B, C, pros, cons, risks, benefits, now, what do you want? What would you do, doctor? <laughs> and then I'm taught to say, no, 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 no. <laughs> this is not for me to decide. This is for you to decide. Only you can know you. I just know the options. You got to tell me what you want. And it always felt so useless um, and like I was abandoning people and then recognizing that this other mode is a true counselor mode. Let me understand what matters to you. Tell me your goals. Tell me your fears. Tell me, and now I understand what your priorities are. And then let's go through those options. And this is what seems to match. And does that make sense to you? And now we could go somewhere. That's getting more and more gratifying. In fact, I, I never thought that among the most gratifying experiences that I'd have as a surgeon would be uh, talking to people even when we come to a conclusion that surgery is not the right thing to do. It is not yet getting easier to tell people for the first time that they have a terminal cancer and that this moment just changed and that every, you know, and, you know, part of me wants to sugarcoat it like, well, we don't know what technology is coming. And it's true. We don't know what technology is coming. It's amazing what, you know, Kendall Square Biotech is producing up in Boston. But then, you know, we have to also deal with the fact that this is very, very worrisome and that the worst case here and the most likely case is something that we have to prepare for in ways that um, we don't like discussing. You are unique. You don't walk like everybody else. You don't talk like everybody else or sleep like everyone else. You do not listen to the same podcast everybody else does. So why is your mattress one size fits all? A truly customized mattress, it just feels really great to sleep on, but it'll often cost you five to $10,000 until now. Go to helixsleep.com, answer a few simple questions, and they will run a 3D biomechanical model of your body through their proprietary algorithms that they developed with the help of the world's leading ergonomics and biomechanic experts. The result is the most comfortable mattress you've ever slept on. Helix customers report a 30% improvement in overall sleep quality, and for couples, they will customize each side of the mattress. Your mattress arrives at your door in about a week, and the shipping is completely free. That is why everyone from GQ Magazine to Forbes is talking about Helix Sleep. You have 100 nights to try it out, and if you don't love it, they will pick it up for free and give you a full refund. No questions asked. 
Go to helixsleep.com slash weeds and get $50 off your order right now. That's helixsleep.com slash weeds for $50 off. helixsleep.com slash weeds. This you know, passage in your book really stuck with me as I was rereading it to prepare for this. You write that much of the satisfaction of being a physician, it comes from being technically skilled and able to solve difficult, intricate problems. For a clinician, therefore, nothing is more threatening to who you think you are than a patient with a problem you cannot solve. And you write about this in the context of death, which obviously will become a problem that none of us are able to solve. But it really made me think more broadly about medicine, that there are lots of problems that doctors can't solve, a frustrating number. Um, I've had these issues with my left foot, and you know I'm generally a healthy 32-year-old, but doctors are very happy to refer me to someone else because they think that is a good solution. What drives that? Is it kind of how doctors are trained that they need to find a solution, the economics of medicine, where you get paid for you know, each procedure that you're doing? What drives this constant search for kind of focus on a solution versus, I was really interested in your New Yorker article earlier this year about this headache clinic in Massachusetts where, where they don't offer solutions, where they say, maybe we can make it 25% better, but we are not going to cure you, which is not something most doctors will say to you. That to me was the incredible frame shift thinking through the end of life and realizing that this set of discussions extend really to any point where you need help and it may not be fixable. Um, because the whole mode, your question of, you know, why, why do doctors feel that we have to fix everything? <laughs> because, you know, we all went into it thinking we wanted to be heroes, right? <laughs> And especially if you go into surgery, like I, I not only want to be able to fix the problem, if I can't fix it in under three hours, like, oh, it's so boring. <laughs> um, <laughs> and realizing that fixing doesn't necessarily mean making it go away. That fixing can be helping you achieve what your goals are in your life around the reality of what you're facing. And, you know, we get to live now on average with the right care 85 years or so. Um, and of course, there's a wide distribution around that, and it's not entirely predictable. But being able to have that kind of lifespan means you're going to spend a significant chunk of your life with conditions that won't be cured. High blood pressure, diabetes, arthritis, um, you know, many rare things. And we have the capacity to make it possible to, um, uh, to do better than you would ever done in history while at the same time having the reality of um, some diminished functions and some things you may not be able to do all those 85 years. And then discovering along the way that that's okay. You know, reading Laura Carstensen, I have a whole chapter about Laura Carstensen, who's the Stanford psychologist who followed people over. She's followed people for three decades. Uh, they started in the study at age 18 to 94, and she's followed them to the end of their life. And discovering that as time went on, their health declined, as you would expect. Nobody got more healthy. <laughs> that they lost some functions along the way. But that they also led lives that became, on average, more happy, more fulfilling, more satisfying. That people, for example, after age 65, were more likely to find love in their life than earlier in their life, to have had love, to have love in their life. Um, that people are less likely to have anxiety and less likely to have depression as they get older. And that was completely against, that is so in violation of the model that you have in your head as a clinician, because the model most of us have in our head is that um, my job, my number one priority is to make you healthy mm -hmm. and independent. But then what does that mean my goal is for you if you're not healthy or can't be independent? Um, what does it mean goals are when you're sick? And, um, and realizing those goals can be things like helping people just feel better or being able to do certain things they want to do in their life. And those could be incredible victories and, in fact, have huge value. Well, geriatricians know exactly what it's like to do that kind of work or palliative care clinicians and people in other kinds of chronic illness management, a big part of primary care, which I was writing about, in the early part of this year is showing the value of what I called incremental care. That is not rescue care, which is what I do as a surgeon. I come in after the problem's there and let me rescue the situation. 
the incrementalists, it could be a psychiatrist, it could be a rheumatologist, it could be a primary clinician, make small deposits over time of systematic, steady follow-up with the issues that you have and enable you to do better than you would have without them and can be remarkably better. And part of my argument in that January piece was that that work is showing more value than the rescue artists have had, that we're generating more years of extended life, better life from, you know, just making sure your high blood pressure actually is under control. And so that's an amazing thing. We're, our whole health policy system, as you know, it's not constructed to take on this set of issues. Would almost, it feels almost pessimistic as a patient to be told, you know, I can fix 25% of the problem, but not 75, which seems like it makes it a difficult conversation. When we see a lot of, you know, advertisements about new cures, about, you know, look at this heroic thing that could be done to save someone like, like you, you might see on television, it seems hard to accept as a patient that, well, maybe only 25% is what medicine seems to be much more limited, I think, than many of us kind of hope and, and expect when we go to the doctor? Well, let's, let's take this comparison. So the biggest killer in the country is now high, high blood pressure, now that smoking is down. We only have only 40% of people with high blood pressure, and it's a third of adults have high blood pressure, like a third of you. <laughs> <laughs> and only 40% have it recognized and under control. And this is the biggest killer in the country. And when we can get that 25% better, <laughs> we can turn it into no longer being the number one killer, but to be the number, one, number two killer. This is the biggest cause of dementia. This is the biggest cause of heart attacks. This is the biggest cause of strokes. And already our succeeding in getting it under better control has pushed down the amount of dementia. So we hear a lot about Alzheimer's. That's actually only a small fraction of dementia. That's mostly high blood pressure. So... To me, is it exciting? Like, no, we can't, we can't cure high blood pressure. Is it exciting that we have the capacity to drive that up to 70 to 80% of the population that could have that under better control if you see someone steadily and, have the, um, and they're good at helping design the right pathway to keep your blood pressure under control? So Kaiser Permanente was the first to do it, and they took that number one killer down to number two, now the state of Minnesota became the first state that deployed it. They got up to 70% control. And now dementia, strokes, heart attacks, all down. No, now no longer the number one killer in the entire state. And now you have other states flipping over. That is so cool. Like, I don't, like <laughs> some, that, that doesn't sound depressing to me. Yeah. That sounds like, you know, I want more of that. Yeah. <laughs> You, in being mortal, you visit all these different places that seem to be pockets of innovation for end-of-life care. You, um, the one that stuck out to me, mostly as someone who loves animals, is the one that brought in dogs and cats and all sorts of animals. Crazy and, Bill Thomas. Yes, that's the one. Um, <laughs> and I decided I want to live in, you know, when I get old, I want a nursing home with 10 dogs running around me. Um, but they all seem somewhat isolated. It kind of, like, depends on where you live, if, like, this home has an opening for you. Why has end-of-life care developed, and I know you've written separately on kind of slow and fast innovation, ideas that spread very quickly, ideas that just take a long time to stick. And I'm curious how you came away from this thinking about why you have, you know, some really standout examples, but they don't seem to proliferate very easily. Well, so part of it, I think, is one nursing home director brought it home to me the best. She said she sells to the adult children of elderly parents. The parents don't make the decision about whether they're going to take a nursing home or not that they're going to. The adult children do. And the adult children have only one question. Is it safe? Not, are they going to be lonely? Are they going to be, are they going to have purpose? You know, is my mom going to, going to be happy? And what the director said was, safety is what we want for those we love and autonomy is what we want for ourselves. And recognizing that a lot of times the whole urge to go to a to end up in a place like a nursing home is driven by the fact that it's a sequence of events where someone is no longer succeeding very well at home. The adult child is pushing mom or dad to go look at this place because you can't live the way you're living right now and never had the discussion about 
well, what are your priorities? What are you most worried about? What are you scared about? And, um, and so then the result is neither the child nor the parent imagine that the place is one that would enable their ability to live a better life. It's only like, well, you know, I'm just at that stage that I'm stuck. This is the only option there is. And I think what Bill Thomas, who calls himself a nursing home abolitionist, was creating just in his first experiment as a nursing home director, who a medical director of a nursing home who said, let me let people have pets. And, you know, everybody went ape. The staff, the director, the regulators, like, how can you have pets? They're not safe. People are going to be allergic. You know, like, who's going to clean up the poop? <laughs> you know, like all these incredibly difficult questions. But, you know, his, his point is like, if you can't have a pet, what are we here for? You know, like, we're keeping people alive for a reason. And the reason must be to be able to show love and to have caring and to have responsibility and purpose that can be emblematic, you know, symbolized by just being able to have a pet. And in fact, made it work. But it's hard work. And if you aren't punished in the market for not providing those, those opportunities, then you have failure. I, one thing I'd say, though, in the, in the time since the book came out, there's been a shift over the last three years. Marketing is changing. Um, even regulators are starting to, you know, there's a cultural movement. The baby boomers are seeing what happened to their parents and are saying they would not want that to be the way that they have their life go. Um, my mom is five years out now from my dad's death in the book. She turned 80 last year. She had a car crash going to the Rotary Club. She, you know, had some financial papers that didn't get filed. Um, and so, you know, we started having this conversation. And what I thought she'd want is to be at home, you know, like being in our home in Ohio. That's what would ultimately matter. And when we had that discussion about what are your fears, her biggest fear was ending up in a nursing home where she wouldn't have control over her life. And she ended up choosing a place. I, I took her to visit various places, including ones that were in the book. And she ended up picking one that wasn't in the book. It was on a college campus near, our, near where I live. Um, it's called LaSalle Village. And it is built on the campus. Students from the campus work there. You can do social work and other things there. Um, and they were incredibly smart because they, I think they read the book. <laughs> <laughs> well, then, of course, they're smart. <laughs> right. And so when she came by, she's a pediat former pediatrician. They had a lunch arranged with three other women. One had been a doctor. Another had been married to one. And the third had been um, a scientist who they arranged every week that she could still go to her lab meeting once a week to participate in her lab meeting. They saw it as their role to keep people connected in the world. And my mom now is there. She, she was the one who figured out how to call up Uber and Lyft and <laughs> gave a little class on how you can have more freedom because you can just get a Lyft and go wherever you want. And, and uh, Where does she go? She doesn't tell me. <laughs> she so, has autonomy then, I would say. She has autonomy. Because that was what she, you know, like, I need control. And this was a place that gave her that control. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so, you know, I think the market is starting to shift. Why is it shifting? Is it adult children are kind of, you know, reading your book, becoming more aware of these issues? <laughs> or what, what's shifting the market? I think it starts with the rich. And the rich, for one thing, are starting to demand that they have a chance to, they don't have to, you don't have to accept the rules of the, of the nursing home. I'll give an example that where is one that sort of was caused by the book. There was a senior retirement community where they read the book for, um, as a book club thing. And then they decided to have a second meeting and they read the book some more. And then they had decided to have a third meeting and then to the third one, they said, what's this place need to do differently <laughs> to live up to the, to what, what we want that we see in this book? And then by the fourth meeting, you know, the revolution had started. The they had union. a list of demands. They had all these different things. They'd set up a council. And they, they you know, they wow. went to work. They, they started changing. And, and, and you start seeing that, and not just because from the book, but I think people are starting to recognize you can push back on the idea. You know, the, the assumption is if a nurse says, it's not safe, you can't have a drink tonight, or it's not safe, you have to, you know, no soda for you 
you can push back and say, so what? <laughs> like, you know, there's more to it. I'm going to take that risk, and we have to have a way that let you, lets you take that risk and make it happen. And I think that shift in culture is starting to happen because of various conversations, not just the book, but, okay. but various, <laughs> various conversations. I just get to see the ones that are associated with sure. it. We do a lot of hiring here at Fox, and it's honestly really hard to find good talent and really important to hire great people. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to 100 plus job sites with just one click. Then their powerful technology efficiently matches the right people to your job better than anyone else. That's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them. In fact, 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within one day. No juggling emails or calls to your office. You can screen, rate, and manage candidates all in one place with ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use dashboard. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And right now, our listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That is right, completely free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash weeds. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash weeds. One more time to try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash weeds. All right, so I'm going to shift a little bit away from end-of-life care yeah, yeah. to other topics. There's this paper, um, it was in a smaller medical journal, I think of it as an Atul Gawande B-side about the opioid epidemic, right. kind of the role of surgery in opioids. It's not a topic I've seen you write on a lot, but it's one I'm sure you have thoughts on. And, you know, the thing you write about there is giving, and it did actually relate to some of the conversation we've had earlier about giving patients reasonable expectations about what medicine can and can't do. In this case, how much pain to expect in a post-operative situation. And I was curious how you, you know, look at the opioid epidemic we're having right now, what the role of professional medicine has been in that, and where you feel like we are in moving out of that, moving away from that, and, and where it leaves patients with pains. What do you tell people when, you know, you don't have a safe way to, to figure out, to, to solve chronic pain? Yeah, you're, I'm, I'm amazed you picked up on this article. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, uh, I was writing this to my fellow surgical audience in a, in a surgical journal um, where uh, it was a special issue devoted to the latest research on what we knew about opioids. And basically, what it showed was that we as a profession have caused an epidemic that is bigger than the HIV epidemic. We have more deaths from drug overdoses than occurred in, in the peak of the HIV AIDS epidemic in 1995. Um, that's how big this is. It's more deaths than in motor vehicle accidents. And the cause in the opioid epidemic has been, uh, starts with getting a prescription of opioids from physicians where we weren't recognizing, I certainly wasn't recognizing, the extent to which we were putting people at risk. And I think the key thing that has stuck in my mind was that when you go in for an operation if, uh, and you give a supply of opioid pills, that, um, uh, that if people are on those pills for seven days, they have an 8% chance of one year later still being on those narcotic pills. Wow. It is startling. Huge. It is startling. I had no idea. You know, basically, I was like, more is better. Take some. And you where know, did you develop that? Like, I'm sure you're... It was really out of... reps or what happens when... No, it really was out of the movement that said, we, you know, and I saw this all the time in my surgical training, we did not treat pain. We left people in terrible pain and in suffering, and it was a kind of inhumanity that I thought was unacceptable. And so I really keyed into the lessons from people like palliative care clinicians saying, we have to measure pain and we have to treat pain. But what we had not done was continue to measure kind of what was happening along the way. There are many reasons for that we can talk about, including you know, not funding the research that behind it, which is crucial, and the kind of marketing that that the companies did. But the biggest reason was that we weren't recognizing this issue. And so this editorial said a few things. Number one is there are things that we can do and we still weren't doing. At the, we were at the height of the epidemic and we still weren't doing. Number one was there was a group of people who did some basic research showing that, for example, so I do a cancer surgery and after thyroid surgery or breast cancer surgery, that 10 pills covered the need of more than 80% of patients. 
and you'd still have a third of them have leftover pills. And so we should be prescribing way less than we often give out, and we should have the research that shows what that need really is. Second, that we have to teach people that the goal is not zero pain. The goal is that um, you have uh, you have enough pain that there'll be an ache, but you can do the things you want to do. You can sleep, you can eat, you can go shopping, you can do the things you need to do. Third, tell people these are addictive. Weighing that against you know your choices. Fourth, teach them how to dispose of these. So the biggest thing is that the leftover pills get stolen and then go onto the black market that way. So the FDA has methods. So for narcotics, for example, you can flush it down the toilet and you can tell people dispose it that way. And then finally, there's a need for electronic prescribing. We, virtually all doctors now prescribe electronically for non-narcotics. There are the systems in place to, to prescribe narcotics electronically. And that allows you to trace where narcotics end up and also um, make it so you don't feel bad giving just enough pills because then if they call you saying, I need more, you can enter the prescription and go there rather than, you know, I have patients coming away, coming in from out of state even, and then you're telling them, you know, drive back four hours to pick up the paper prescription, which is the only way otherwise you'd get it. New York State flipped to that system and it has heavily cut the diversion of narcotic medications and the amount of, uh, of the medication play. Now we're on the back end where you have so many people addicted, and now that we're tightening it up, it's moved over into heroin and into illegal fentanyl and other things that have uh, complicated things along the way. It sounds like you attribute a large role of this to professional medicine. We started it. Medicine. We started it. Um, all right. I'm going to ask about five to 10 minutes more of questions, and then we're going to have space for audience my, questions. My questions are so, my short answers are too long. I didn't realize we're already <laughs> all right, we'll have a bit of All right. We'll have a bit of a lightning round here. Okay. So I'll be I'll try and go for. I'll be good. I, I was, so short questions when you guys are asking questions, short answers for, for a tool. Yes. So what, and I'll have short questions as well. I'll play by this rule. What country's healthcare system do you admire the most? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> So, I mean, the U.S. is not on that list. <laughs> there are so many countries. You know, basically, every one of them are struggling with this set of issues. And uh, I don't know that I've seen any that I think have struck it perfectly. And there are many things I love about the American system. You know, I admire the primary care system of the United Kingdom. I admire the electronic systems that I've seen in the Netherlands. I admire in Singapore, the hospitals are amazing. I would not want the primary care system there. And, um, and so the short answer, I'm short, short, uh, um, is, and you can't ask a question like that. <laughs> I think it's short. Uh, I wrote an article a while ago about the fact that you're on a pathway as a country where you don't get to just like swap out your healthcare system, um, that you're always building it off of the things that were in your past. And I think in a variety of ways, World War II decimated France, England, Europe in so many ways that the that they then built relatively simplified systems in places like Germany and others that have allowed them to meet their country's um, values and goals. The one value that I think I really admire us as having in the United States is the drive for innovation. And uh, we are the source of innovation around the world. I don't think that that's opposed to the idea that we should have equity and capacity to um, have coverage for everybody uh, so that we can all have that p possibility of those 85 or more years as more discoveries come down the line. Got it. Um, which one do you like? Oh, which one do I? <laughs> you can't turn this back on me. I'm just the, come on, the moderator one, come here. Come on, you, you, you've studied like all of them every <laughs> week. I'm a big I, I'm a big fan of the German and Swiss systems. I really, Those are two completely different systems. No. So you can you got to pick and choose. I can pick and choose too. <laughs> okay. I'm really interested in all payer rate setting, where essentially the government, instead of moving to single payer, sets the prices for all these different plans, and they compete together in a much more regulated system. Um, there are many Vox explainers about this. If you are looking to get read on the issue, um, do you think a single payer system could work in the United States? Um, so, yes, uh, the, the puzzle it, to me is what we mean by a single-payer system. I, even our single-payer system isn't a single-payer system. Like, you know, <laughs> Medicare is a mix of 
you have people in who have the Medicare HMO plans, and my mom likes her HMO plan, and then you have the Medicare um, fee-for-service standard system. I think the more likely thing, the thing I'm really excited by is the proposals different people have made, including the law that passed in Nevada but got vetoed by the governor, that opened up the idea of having a buy-in for Medicaid. The idea that there might be one system that would be open to everybody would allow us a transition. I think the fundamental disaster of the American healthcare system is that we tied where you get healthcare to your workplace. Um, and that does not work, especially in a world where more and more people move in and out of jobs. It makes everybody get a completely different deal for healthcare. No other country in the world ties where you get healthcare to where you're working. Um, and so we have to break out of that. And the idea that in your state you could opt into a Medicaid plan, you pay for it on the basis of your income, and that that be the backstop there for you, it's the kind of transitional system that I think we could get to. And we're such a big country, I'm skeptical that it would be a sort of unitary one Medicare system. Even Canada had to go to province-based delivery of care because, you know, Quebec is very different from, you know, British Columbia. You write about a pretty diverse set of topics in medicine. Is there one article or book you can tell us about that you're most proud of that you feel like really stuck with you? And on the flip side, so this isn't a total softball, is there one you feel like, man, I wish I had another crack at that, that I, you know, didn't land that one? So the one that immediately jumped to mind was my piece called Hellhole about solitary confinement, mm -hmm. the one I'm proud of. <laughs> um, and, uh, and was in a way frustrating because it also got relatively little impact at the time. So it was a piece in 2010 I'd done about is solitary confinement torture? And speaks to the diversity of things that I love to do, which is that I like the lens of medicine as a way of peering into all of the challenges of just being a human in society um, and understanding it and the ways that science and society intersect and, and the ways in which we use technology and, and think about, you know, individual capability and freedom versus what group endeavors allow us to do. So solitary confinement, I compared the studies of the damage done to hostages who've been put into solitary confinement, including John McCain's experience as a POW, and then compared that to um, the experience of prisoners. We have more than 50,000 people who are under long-term solitary confinement, meaning that people have been in for months to years uh, with no human contact. And, um, and it's very clear, we're social animals, and we go crazy when you take away social contact. We, we cannot function properly as human beings. And uh, it is evident that it's considered universally torture of hostages, and I came to the conclusion the same about uh, prisoners. Uh, and so that one I'm especially proud of and feel that it should be having more impact, that we still countenance this. We've made some progress, but not enough. Ones I wish I could go back and and redo, there are a lot. <laughs> Almost any of my policy ones, I feel like the story keeps going on, and my goal on any of my pieces is I want them to be lasting and cool, and that I want them to be, you know, things that you would want to read five years later and just, you know, make you, I don't know, feel something. Like, I remember I got in a battle over with David Remnick, my editor at The New Yorker, because I, I described a kid who had a rope of snot hanging out of his nose. He was like, that is too disgusting. <laughs> like, you got to cut it. And so he kept cutting it. And then I, had, I, had, I was in cahoots with the copy editor, and they would <laughs> alert me, and I would put it back in. And we snuck it in, and we got it all the way in. And, like, that's, like, I wanted you to be grossed out just a little bit, like, to get that little moment in there. Um, and so, yeah, so, you know, I wish um, I would go back and, and rewrite a lot of my policy pieces and try to figure out, like, how could I make them feel like they'd, you'd want to read them even longer into the future. So I'm going to ask one more question that is not about healthcare at all. Um, we have two microphones here if you want to line up to ask questions. We have about 15 to 20 minutes or so. Um, so my last question in preparation for this, I listened to an interview you did with my colleague Ezra Klein a few years ago where you had this throwaway line that I wanted to follow up on. You said that between working in Washington, becoming a doctor, becoming a writer, you had a brief career as a rock musician. Right. And I was just hoping you could tell us a little bit more about, um, about that phase of your life. I would give it up all 
if I could have been a successful rock musician. <laughs> the, um, when I was in college, so I met my wife now, which she was a freshman. Um, I talked her into teaching me to play guitar. And, uh, and so uh, for a while after that, I was doing a lot of writing. I wrote a lot of music and uh, recorded, learned to record on a little four-track recorder back in the day. And, uh, and I wrote songs to her and, um, and then performed a little bit. And what it was, was the name so of your bad. Band? It had so many different names. One, for example, I went for a little while, I called it Thousands of Breaded Shrimp. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of see why this didn't work out. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like, I, my love song for Kathleen was about the, the it was called, uh, it was about the, uh, the decline of Marxism and the rise of my love for her. Wow. <laughs> oh. So it never made it out of college kind of days. Well. Yeah. My daughter is the rock musician now, so oh, okay. she's who I pin all my hopes. Okay. <laughs> well, at least you have many other talents. So. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Parachute. I've been sleeping on Parachute's really comfortable, beautiful sheets for a few weeks, and it is just super, super nice. You wake up feeling pretty refreshed, and you kind of wonder why you were sleeping on your other sheets in the first place. Their products are all designed at their headquarters in Venice Beach. The sheets have a really modern, clean design. I have these really nice white ones that really work with the style of my home. They have natural colors and minimalist styles that are gender neutral. And Parachute incorporates thoughtful design details, like a back envelope closure on their pillowcases and soft rubber buttons on the bottom of their duvet covers. It's really easy to mix and match between all their different colors and fabrics. Right now, you can visit parachutehome.com weeds for free shipping and returns on your own set of sheets. Plus, Parachute offers a 60-night trial. So if you don't love it, you just send it back. No questions asked. That's parachutehome.com weeds for free shipping and returns. Parachutehome.com weeds. All right, if you want to go ahead, and I just ask folks, we do have a lot of people in line. Please be mindful of that and aim for quick questions if you can. Hi, my name is Sarah. I live in Paducah, Kentucky, and I just wanted to say, first of all, you taking responsibility that way and saying we started it was very powerful as a state rocked by the opioid crisis. I'm tearing up a little bit, <laughs> which I did not expect to do. But um, I just wanted to say that in reading your book, it seemed like the message I took away was you can't decide what kind of health care you want if you don't know what kind of life you want. And I think... That's so powerful in other points in our healthcare, but it seems like end of life is crystallizing that what you want from life in a way. So what do you say if you're not facing the end of life and you need people to think through what kind of life do you want? Because that will help you make this decision when there's not so much on the line. Like I'm a mother. And so I think that that could be really applicable in labor, labor and delivery. Like what kind of parent do you want to be? What kind of, and so how do you, how do we push the conversation there and other forms of healthcare. Uh, this is so important, and I could go on for the next hour, but I'll try not to about this one. Um, two levels. So number one, uh, I run a research center that I launched about five years ago called Ariadne Labs. Um, and it's a center for kind of public health or health system innovation in exactly this way. So in um, we have a whole project around childbirth, how um, we can be much more intentional about childbirth. It's, it's focus, it's designed, purely for the survival of the baby, without thinking about the well-being of the mom and the baby and, and thinking they're not opposed to one another. So, you know, right now in the United States, when you, either 11,000 people will give birth on a given day, um, they uh, will uh, go, uh, one-third will end up having surgery to deliver the baby, 10% of their babies will end up in intensive care and will spend 0.6% of GDP today on that population. Can we do better than that? Absolutely. And we, could, we know we can do better because the likelihood of a C-section is from 7 to 70%. And we're doing all of that, and we have the worst survival for moms in the developed world. So, you know, there's a team I have who are, uh, in fact, meeting as we speak, designing a kind of checklist for how we can drive better outcomes along the way. To take it one step farther, though, during the ACA, I joined with two other economists to do an analysis of all of the research about what in the last decade do we know about how coverage has affected people's health and their lives. And there's um, some complex things that it showed. Number one was that, um, that when people get coverage for their 
healthcare needs, uh, it's not emergency care that saves their lives. The emergency care, people are getting it, but it bankrupts them. The immediate effect is they get financial protection. About a year into having a regular source of care and access to the medications you need, the first thing that improves is their mental health. About a third reduction in depression. And it's not clear it's just from the depression treatment. It's also from just having a steady source of care for, the, for your health. Then the next immediate thing people have is a market like 25% report that they feel that they are in excellent health. And this opens up a question like, is, this, is that an important value? Is it worth having people feel better? It isn't until five years out that you see having a regular source of health results in improved survival. But all along the way, you know, having a regular source of health, every year subsequently we see a 1% increase in your likelihood of survival. But the survival is not the only goal here. Mm -hmm. It's the fact that you've had regular source of health with fewer likelihood of like missing work and not getting to do the things you want. And so I think this question is crucial. We have had a very narrow discussion about healthcare where it's all about emergency rooms and heroic care rather than how do you get to live? How do we all get to live this capability that science is providing of having a really remarkable, healthier than ever, 85-year-on-average life expectancy if we do it right. Thank you. Hi, um, my name's Trudell, and actually I work for Kaiser Permanente, so thank you for the <laughs> shout-out. Um, but I just wanted to ask, so uh, you talked about how you really like looking at things through the lens of medicine, and, and that's really um, strong sort of in all the things that you've written. And I'm sort of wondering if you worry at all about medicine kind of taking over too many things about, like, medicalization as it expands. Absolutely. The, 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 the sense in which I like looking at it through that lens is that in... The, that, that you can see everything play out in healthcare, including the values that people have, what we're medicalizing, what we're not, um, money, how people get paid, uh, values in different ways. When I go to different places in the world, there's nothing I'm more, like more, like my wife goes to the museums, I go to the hospitals. <laughs> like you go to a hospital and it's amazing. Like you can see the whole culture. Like, I, I went to, you know, Amman, Jordan and, and get to hang out in the operating rooms. And you think it's all about, um, you know, so all of the anesthesiologists were women and all the surgeons were men. And you think that the, um, you know, that, that that would be a whole hierarchy thing and the surgeons would be, you know, this very dominant role. And then I'd see this, you know, Head scarfed and then a, and then a cap over it and and every, um, anesthesiologist start yelling at the surgeon. I saw you break. You know you contaminated yourself. You stop this operation right now. You will not infect my patient. Like that is just a world of understanding. Like how complicated and how much more interesting the whole thing is. And you wouldn't. You know, healthcare gives you a sense of. of what happens in these dramatic moments in people's lives, how we deal with complexity, how, you know, 85 people work together. It's all, you know, it is, um, it's just a lens that you catch people in everything from birth to death to struggle um, and, uh, uh, and how a society works. But I definitely think that there are ways in which you see in one culture like America, we've over we've heavily medicalized certain things, under medicalized other things. Like, you know, we we are amazing at catching cancers that are never even going to kill you, but not good at dealing with high blood pressure that is going to kill you. Like, that's interesting. Like, what's the problem there? And then you go to somewhere else, and they've got a whole different set of problems. They've, you know. They ignore it all. You know, we're doing a project in Estonia, and it's completely fascinating. Like one of their biggest problems is they can't get people to come in uh, for healthcare, and how do you how do you do that? Thank you very much for your words this evening. I am a college student here in the Washington D.C. area, and I'm seriously considering studying medicine to a certain extent because I find interacting with others to be very meaningful. My question is. What do you think is particularly important for individuals working in the medical field to know about communication and people skills? Well, uh, big question. <laughs> um, it's all about communication and medicine. Although what's interesting is medicine, basically, you can put off deciding what you want to be 
when you grow up for a whole lot of time, <laughs> which was very attractive to me. <laughs> and so I didn't have to make all these choices. And there are corners in medicine where you can choose the part that where you don't really have to be good at communication. You can work in laboratory medicine. You can work in a basic science lab. You can work in pathology where, you know, your life is under looking under a microscope. And that did not appeal to me because I like this. I like talking and <laughs> connecting with people. Um, that said, the fundamental parts of medicine is the interaction between a clinician of whatever kind, a PA, nurse practitioner, nurse, social worker, um, physician, and someone who needs help. And being able to recognize that role I described of being the counselor, being able to ask and understand how to elicit what your priorities are and how to give back information about what the reality that you see is and do it in a way that can recognize what different people people are and how differently they hear things and what they can process and what they can't process. Um, that to me is the fundamental moment of medicine. The to me, it's the literary moment of medicine. It's that, it, it, that, that is a, I love that moment. <laughs> and I feel like the whole world is sort of reflected in that. Um, and it's, you spend your life trying to learn how to talk, literally your life trying to learn how to talk. Good evening. My name is Manuela, and um, I listened to your book, not the reading. The reading will come now after I bought it. The and actor I who does the reading is, has such a better voice than I have. <laughs> it must be really disappointing. And <laughs> you would do fine. <laughs> okay. I'll tell him. But... He is so good that I have to share with the audience that listening to the book will bring far more um, emotional content that yep. doesn't come from just reading. I, as, with my English as a foreign language, I listen a lot so I can help my English get better. I have a comment and a question. The comment is about the dependence um, of the workplace with the insurance. This is a mainstream perception which became reality after Obama, after Affordable Care Act came in place and you are dependent on having, on being there. But if the employees would want to know better how the plan works, if the HR departments would make these sessions to find out how things are, the insurer can change the contract if the company would ask for very articulated changes because this is a legal contract that can be changed. But people get sick, go to the doctor, do what they do, and they don't think about it when the good facts scenario are around them. And these changes could be made if articulated changes are asked because it's, it's not built in stone. You're putting your finger on a topic we both write about and talk about a lot, which is, um, so how do we have bargaining power? You know, um, you, one way, which is the current way that we're in the middle of a giant experiment about, is to say that we're going to give everybody huge deductibles and you will bargain for yourself. You know, now it's not uncommon for people to have a $2,500 deductible. Um, where the average, you know, something like less than half the population has $500 in the bank. So, you know, a deductible that implies you're going to pay out of pocket for things that most people can't afford. And I think what we're seeing, we know this from many years of uh, paying for pills, paying for drugs with high, high deductibles on those, that people end up foregoing medicines that they need for long periods of time. And we're seeing evidence that that happens um, around getting uh, to see doctors and hospitals and things like that. And, I, and that hurts health and the value of care in the long run. The second model that people have had is, that, well, employers have the bargaining power because they have hundreds of patients, people want them, and that the employers can really negotiate. Um, I had a really interesting discussion with the uh, head of benefits for BMW. You know, this is a big company. They've got a lot of leverage. They're in South Carolina. And what they tried to do was have use that leverage to negotiate with the um, with the with the state and with physicians and others to provide the right care. Their number one and number two reason that their employees went to the emergency room 
were dental emergencies and mental health care. And they, those were not adequately provided in the community. And they couldn't get it to happen. And they also just didn't want to. Like the executives, you know, the, the, the benefit managers, like, I'll work on this. But the executives, like, that's not our business. That's not what our, that's not what we're good at. Like, we're good at bumpers. <laughs> we're, we're not good at dental. <laughs> but they ended up having to build, you know, they ultimately kind of, you know, finally sucked it up and they built a dental health clinic. Now, do you want your employer to have a mental health clinic for you? And so, you know, that whole model, the employers don't want to be in that business. And then it's not clear you want them in that business in the same way. And so that struggle is there as well, which is why people, the wonky types, start getting interested in things like rate regulation versus whether you really can now create competition among accountable care plans. Um, we're in this moment where we're debating can we have a way to shop around for plans on exchanges and that will be the ultimate way we go. We have government be the regulator and kind of the single controller at that level or whether you're going to be able to handle it out of pocket. And, you know, the track record for all three isn't that great, really. <laughs> so that's, that's the challenge we're, we're up against. But I see your point that, you know, the employers can step forward and, uh, and negotiate. Um, so my name is Anne-Marie. I'm an MPH student. Um, and I was sort of wondering how you can better have these conversations outside of the doctor's office, how to better have these conversations with family members, whether it's from the side of, um, you know, a child who doesn't quite want to let go yet, even if it's, you know, really needs to be talked about, or whether it's a parent feeling like they might be a burden on their family members if they don't make a certain decision. Um, how do we better have those conversations? I'm so glad you asked that. I think this is changing now. I mean, it, you know, when the book first came out in 2014, we were still at a phase where it felt like these conversations are, are, are death panels, you know, that this is a conversation about when will you just give up and die? And no one wanted to have that conversation. The, a parent doesn't want to have that conversation, or, you know, a, a person doesn't want to have that conversation. The family doesn't want to have the conversation. The clinician doesn't want to. But turn it around and say... What really matters to you, even if your health worsens? What are the priorities that you have? Because this is the only way you have control. And the, um, the how to be able to do that is, you know, to bite that bullet at that family occasion, you know, getting together Thanksgiving and saying, so how, are, how is your health? Where, do you, where, where is your health at this time? Um, what are you worried about for the future of your health? Um, are there things that I should understand? And half the time, you know, whoever you're talking to will say, That's, I don't want to talk about that. <laughs> and, but you've opened the door. And the second thing I learned from talking to both my mom and my dad is that the indirect conversation often is what gets it going, like saying, so, you know, I read this thing about this guy who said that if they could have chocolate ice cream and football on television, that would be their living will. Is that crazy? <laughs> and then you have that whole conversation. It's become my favorite conversation starter. Right? You come to dinner, and this is what we talk about. And, <laughs> and, and we go around like, you know. It must be a popular I, dinner. Uh, exactly. You know, I, I met a minister of health from New Zealand. And I said, so, you know, what really matters to you? <laughs> and, and he had pictures in his office of his kids and his wife. And I said, like, you know, it must be really being with your family. Like, he's like, well... <laughs> It's complicated. <laughs> he said, what it would really be for me is reading a book. If I could just read a book and just have peace, that would be good enough for me. First of all, like, okay. <laughs> but that is the kind of thing that got, um, got him going. Hearing what other people had to say about it or hearing, talking about another family member and what they did, 40% of people in the last poll that we'd done at my research center had a death in the family with of someone close to them in the last year. How many of you had a death in the family of uh, someone close to you in the last year? All right, maybe 30%. Okay. No, maybe 40. Um, but it's a lot, and it's not an uncommon situation. And most, many of those people report that there were things they thought were beautiful about it and things they thought they weren't, and they opened the door to um, being able to talk about you know what happened there, and then it, and then and then you can take it further. Um, I think it's absolutely crucial 
less than a quarter, oh, sorry, less than half of you have um, named your healthcare proxy. Who's going to make decisions when, if you can't? But three quarters of you, when that moment comes, someone else will have to make the decision for you. And then an even smaller number who've named your healthcare agent, you have told them what matters to them, <laughs> what matters to you. So, you know, it's in your own interest to do that. And, it, and it's not really about dying. It's about how you want to live and what really matters to you. And I think that it, it's made for, as I said, I've ended up loving these conversations. I learned so much about people. We have time to take two more questions. Thanks. Ready? I got a whole bunch of questions, but I'm only going to ask one. <laughs> uh, for, and also want to use a, hers. <laughs> shout out to Weeds and Vox. Love that oh, stuff. And all the work you guys do. Um, so this is kind of related to the last question. Um, how do you find physicians, um, healthcare facilities, nursing homes, what have you, that have this kind of philosophy that you're talking about and are also creating an evidence base around it um, so that it can spread? But how do we find it? Because transparency in healthcare is, you know, a really difficult thing. And, but especially for this, you know, how do you want to live your life or the last part of your life seems to be a, like a, one of the more important things, and I'd love to hear your, your thoughts it, on that. When it comes to senior retirement communities and, and uh, places like that, it's not that hard because as you walk through, you can ask these questions. You know, going beyond safety, you know, how do you enable the capacity of people to live their, continue to live their lives? Just because you're in a wheelchair doesn't mean you can't have purpose. And um, one place that I've seen is... Uh, a place called Hebrew Senior Life is a, um, ha in Massachusetts. They actually have an annual review process that is a, they call it their 360 vital signs, which not only go through your health issues, but tell me about, you know, your, your closest friends. Tell me about the things that are most important to you to do. And, um, and then let's make a plan around that for how do we begin to make that happen. So I think there is some trans opportunities for transparency there because it's not, the same situation of urgency. In the healthcare space, the, you know, your specialist, your hospital, we're at the primitive stages on this. We, um, the thing I didn't write about in the book is along the way, uh, as part of the laboratory I work in, we have been running a, a three-year experiment with the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute where we randomized half the clinicians, all the clinicians, we had 80% of the clinicians agreed to participate. Half of them we trained in an approach coming out of this to say um, that you ask these questions, uh, you learn how to ask those questions, and you get reminders if you haven't done it for people who are at the highest risk of dying in the next year. We have a way to figure out which ones that are, are at the highest risk and then check and see, are we doing right by them? And then when people come to the end of life, we check and see, did people have the conversations ahead? And we treat it as a mistake. We missed that opportunity to figure out what was happening. And doing that, we drove it up to 92% had the conversations where it was only a fraction. Uh, the um, early results are that the uh, anxiety and depression rates dropped by half. Survival has been so far equal or better. Um, the full results will come out in this coming year. And, I've, and now we've partnered with um, the largest system in Texas, Baylor Scott & White, um, Kaiser Permanente is joining this coalition that are attempting to learn how, learn how to implement it at a large scale. There are many problems to solve. National Health Service in England has also joined in. So I think all of that movement is starting uh, on, their, on the healthcare delivery side in, in, in significant ways. I feel no pressure having the last <laughs> question at all. Um, thank you so much. This has been wonderful. My question is a little bit removed from Being Mortal, which I think was an excellent book, but thinking about healthcare more broadly, as you look forward um, and think about what's going to change, how we're going to have to deal with healthcare in different ways, what non-hospital-based innovation that's going on right now do you think is going to have the biggest impact on what healthcare looks like in the future? Well, I think... I wrote about it in January, and I called it in incremental care, which I just mentioned, which is the idea that the um, we're moving from a place where, 
you know, 1950s, all of the discoveries were things like whether it was penicillin or operation, we were coming in after the fact. And then it really only was once we got computational power that we learned how to detect that, hey, that high blood pressure you have now means something 10 years from now and that you can intervene and make a huge difference down that line. Now we're adding in genomics, the ability to look at, you know, your zip code matters even more than your genetic code. And what are the patterns in your community? What are the conditions in your daily life? I'm in our research center. We've now started tracking on your phone. You have seven sensors and we're looking at people and how they um, recover after illness episodes over long periods of time to try to figure out how you can define, not just that you didn't die and just had complications, but um, you know, how do you maintain your cognitive function? How do you maintain your physical function? How quickly can we get recovery to happen? How real is your recovery? That, that ability to uh, track what might actually be the most meaningful outcomes for people, do it in ways that have continuous feedback and, and data, and then actually the challenges make it actually usable by a clinician and a patient working together. That I think that is where over the next couple of decades, we will be going. We're not outfitted for that world at all because that means having long relationships. We sell insurance on the old model as if it's all about rescue this year. It's going to need to look more like a subscription or even a mortgage, you know, having investments now for the sake of how things will happen over the next 30 years and, um, and to build our relationships and our systems to be able to manage in that way. So that's, that's what I'm most excited about. Thank you. Great. Well, thank you all so much for joining us. This has thank been you, Sarah. A pleasure. Uh, all right. Well, that was my conversation with Atul Gawande, where we learned about his thoughts on the opioid epidemic and the now-failed thousands of breaded shrimp, his terribly, terribly named rock band from college. I hope you enjoyed it. I would love to know what you think about it. You should definitely join us in our Facebook group. You can find it at facebook.com slash groups slash the weeds. It's a really great place to discuss policy. I actually solicited some of the questions you heard in this interview from our Facebook group users. So it's definitely a really great place to hang out. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, wherever else you listen to your podcast. We would love to know what you think. And thank you so much to Jillian Weinberger, who is helping record in person, the staff of Sixth and I, and Politics and Prose, who were a wonderful host for this conversation, and to Bird Pinkerton, who helped us finish this up in the office. Thanks so much for listening, and we will see you next week.